All right, last week we talked about a whole lot of crazy stuff, right? Basically, we talked about the English Reformation, right? We talked about how all of that was, everybody was interrelated, and we're going to talk more about that this evening because we're going to look at Scotland, we're going to look at France, and all of the names that we spoke about last week are going to be there, and then we're going to add a few more. So what we see is not only the interbreeding of Europe, but we see that the same conflicts that they had are the same across the entire continent. Right? Then we're also going to look at the Catholic Reformation, sometimes called the Counter-Reformation. Uh, but are there any questions from last week? No? Everybody went home and did a genealogy of how everybody fits together and have all their arrows pointing? Right? Well, you're going to add to it tonight. Okay? As the English Reformation was taking place, the spirit of reform was taking hold in Scotland. Historically, there's always been great tension between Scotland and England, and beginning in the 14th century, Scotland seeks cooperation with France in staving off English invasions of its territory. England, for her part, historically sought an ally in Spain, as we saw with the marriage of Arthur, Prince of Wales, and Catherine of Aragon, and then when Arthur passed, we saw the marriage of Henry VIII to Catherine of Aragon and all of the mess that that created. Okay? But the spirit of reform was not just limited to, to the church in Scotland. And as the 16th century dawns, there was a growing movement against, amongst the Scottish nobles who sensed that England's divorce from Rome sparked the advance of new policies. Therefore, traditional ties with France should be severed and Scotland should renew attempts to ally herself with England. Meanwhile, those men, and they were all men, actually interested in the reform of the church took advantage of the new socio-political situation, similar to those of Thomas Cramner right, in England, and to further their agendas. All right, here's Scotland. Scotland's at the northern tip of the British Isles. All right, these are my people. I do have some English blood in me. Please don't hold that against me. I try not to, okay? Uh, Scotland is, they are a hardy people. They don't take garbage off of anybody. Uh, they have lived for centuries, for millennia, a very hard and cold life, right? So they're, they don't take anything off of anybody well, right? They're going to let you know what they think, how they think, and they're going to do so loudly, and sometimes they may do it with a claymore, which is a sword about as tall as I am. It's a double-handed sword. We're going to talk a little bit about John Knox tonight. He is, along with Ulrich Zwingli, the only other reformer who carried a sword with him everywhere he went, um, just because he was in Scotland, and if you didn't, you died. Uh, so we'll talk about his struggles with England, we'll talk about his struggles with France, and then we'll go on from there. We'll go on to the French after that. All right? So here we go. The socio-political climate. 1502, James IV of Scotland marries Margaret Tudor. Now, Margaret Tudor is the daughter of Henry VII. Right? We talked about last week how Henry VII defeats Richard III on the Battle of Bosworth Field in uh, August of 1485. Here's Margaret Tudor. Right? So basically what's happening is the Tudor clan is trying to connect themselves or ally themselves with the Scottish nobles, right? They're trying to begin to build relationships again. This isn't, has nothing to do with the church. This is just all politics, right? Because that's what mainly 
intermarriages are. They're just politics in nobility. Right? He's trying to connect these two kingdoms. Right? By the time Henry VIII comes to the throne, there is hope that England and Scotland can begin to have actual peace and they can live in peace. James IV and Margaret have a son. There's Henry VII. James IV and Margaret have a son named James V. I just want you to know that the names tonight are all going to be the same. It's either James, Henry, or Mary. When we get to France, everybody's named Henry, when we, and everybody, all the women are named Mary. So we'll do the best that we can to try to like separate those. I guess they weren't very uh, choosy in their names, you know, so just... Scotland, it's all James, it's all Henry in England, it's all Henry in France, okay? Uh, so Henry VIII, uh, when he comes to the throne, hopes to marry, uh, wait, where was I? Oh, James IV and Mary Tudor have a son, James V, right? James V is, there he is, James V is Henry VIII's nephew, okay? All right. Henry the Seventh. Henry the Seventh is the main dude. He marries his daughter Margaret to James the Fourth. Right? They have a kid named James the Fifth. Okay. Right. James the Fifth is Henry the Eighth's nephew. Right. Start start building out those trees. Right. There's only one. There's only one trunk. I just want you to know. There's only one trunk. It's all branches from here. All right, there's only one trunk, okay? Okay. So James V is Henry's nephew, Henry VIII's nephew. Henry VIII wants to marry off Mary Tudor, Mary I, Bloody Mary, right, to James V, right? So Henry VIII, trying to keep that connection together, wants to marry James V and Mary I, their cousins, that's gross. Right? That happened a lot back then, though. Right? The Habsburg line is all one giant branch. Right? And by the time you get to Charles II or Charles III, man, oh man, the genetic anomalies in that man. If you've seen pictures of him, just, just Google him. I mean, he's got like, long, he looks like Jay Leno, but like horribly wrong. <laughs> right? I mean, everything about this guy is one giant genetic anomaly. Right, because of all the inter, all the inner breathing, it's, it's horrible. It's gross, right? Okay. So, Henry the Eighth wants to marry Mary the First off to James the Fifth, his cousin. Okay. Well, instead, James the Fifth's parents, who is James the Fourth and Margaret Tudor, instead seek France again. Scotland goes back to France, and instead of marrying Mary Tudor. James V marries Mary of Guise. I told you the names aren't... They're all the same, okay? So James V of Scotland marries Mary of Guise of France. Guise is G-U-I-S-E. G-U-I-S-E. Write that name down because when we get to... Oh, there it is. When we get to France, we're going to run into the Guise family again. They play a huge role in the French Reformation. So, 
when Francis, when Francis I of France is fighting the Italian wars against Charles V, and we discussed those for two or three weeks, England and Scotland experience tension with each other, mainly because James V is now married to Mary of Guise, who's a French woman. England and France don't like each other. England and Spain like each other. France and Scotland like each other. Scotland and England are now in tension with each other. All right? So basically all you need to know is that England and Scotland are still at tension with each other. Okay? All right? And from there, the two countries take their separate routes. We don't need to go down those routes because it's long. All right? So let's skip then to 1452. James V marries Mary of Guise. Scotland and England take their separate routes. We're now in 1542. James V dies in battle on December 14, 1542. His infant daughter, Mary Stuart, right? There's another Mary, right? Mary I of England, Mary Tudor, Mary of Guise, who's from the French line, and then Mary Stuart, right? Mary Stuart then becomes the heir apparent of the throne of Scotland. She is six days old when her father was killed in battle. And as usually as things like that happens, there's a giant power struggle. Henry VIII, to take advantage of this situation, attempts to marry Edward VI to Mary Stuart. Once again, it's cousins. They're a little slightly distant cousins, but they're still cousins. Edward is five years old at the time. Mary Stuart is six days old. We're actually less than six months by the time all this gets around. Okay? Weird. The Scottish nobles who are in favor of the union with Edward VI and Mary Stuart are all Protestant. The Scottish nobles who are against the union of Edward VI and Mary Stuart are all Catholic. Mary Stuart's mother, Mary of Guise, is Catholic and French. So what does she do? She ships off Mary Stuart to her family in Guise and has them raise the girl, raise her uh, in education. So basically, Mary Stuart is French in her customs and language and education. She's not Scottish, even though she's Scottish by name. But she still holds on to the throne of Scotland while her mother, Mary of Guise, acts as regent. Okay? Everybody's head spinning now with all the genealogy? Good, you're going to be like that for the rest of the evening. All right? Okay? Now, okay? Mary Stuart in 1558 marries the Dauphin of France. Now, the Dauphin is basically like the Prince of Wales. Dauphin is D A U P H I N. He is the next person in line to the throne. This kid's name is Francis. He's 16. Mary Stuart is 17. They get married, right? He then becomes king of France. He becomes, his father Francis I dies. He becomes Francis II, right? 
he is king of France, but because he's married to Mary Stuart, he is now king consort of Scotland. And because Mary is the heir apparent to the throne of Scotland, she is the titular or the titled queen of, England, of Scotland and the queen consort of France. She holds two crowns. This is important. She holds two crowns, one of Scotland, one of France at this time. But, uh, but things don't really hold out for her in France. Because that same year in 1558, Mary I, or Bloody Mary, dies of uterine cancer. So now the throne of England is up for grabs. Okay? Ready? Mary Stuart is Catholic, which means she believes that her cousin Elizabeth is illegitimate. Therefore, she is not the rightful heir to the throne of England. Okay? Mary Stuart has a claim to the throne of England through her great-grandfather, Henry VII. Right? And by the way, it is actually a stronger claim to the throne of England than Elizabeth has. Okay? And because of this, Mary Stuart and Elizabeth become enemies. And we'll see later that Mary's desire for the English crown actually becomes her undoing. But according to the Catholics, Mary Stuart is now titular queen of England. So she could possibly hold three crowns. She could be king of Scotland, king of France, or excuse me, queen of Scotland, queen of France, queen of England. Those are three powerful states. Right? That's a lot of power to wield. Unfortunately, Francis II dies in 1560 after 16 months of marriage. Right? He was 16 years old when he passed. Right? So the crown of France passes to his brother Charles IX, and Mary's title as queen consort of France is ended. So now she still has possible titles to the queen of Scotland and the queen of England. Right. That's going to be a problem, a big problem. Okay. How does he die? He dies of. Uh, he's kind of a sick kid most of his life. He basically gets like a an infection. It's almost like a upper. They think it's upper respiratory uh, infection, and uh, without antibiotics, he just dies. So yeah, yeah. Okay, everybody's head swimming still. Good. Let's keep going. Mary returns to Scotland in 1561 at the age of 18. All right. And as we stated a few minutes ago, Mary's desire for the throne of England is her downfall. All right. What we're going to do now is we're going to come back to this, because this, the next part of this story fits in after we start talking about the actual Reformation. Okay, So let's talk about John Knox and the Kirk of Scotland or the church, Kirk is K-I-R-K, the Kirk of Scotland. Well, let's talk about how that all fits in, and then we'll come back and see where Mary and Elizabeth and the rest of Scotland fits in. Because Mary's direct descendant is James VI, who becomes James I of England, who is the king responsible for the King James Bible. Okay? Now you begin to see how all this begins to fit around. Number one, it's European history. And European history is dominated by nobility, which means that it's all one giant family struggle. You don't believe me? Read World War I. 
okay? So let's move over to the Church of Scotland. Scotland's first attempts at reform happened in the early 15th century with the teaching of men like John Huss, the Goose, as we've discussed. He's from Bohemia. He's later burned at the stake. And John Wycliffe, who we call the Wycliffe Bible translators after. Right? This gives Protestantism fertile ground in which to plant. Many Scottish nobles had studied abroad in the German states and returning home brought with them the teachings of Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and, uh, yeah, Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. Right? So they're very familiar with this new reformed theology, with this new ideas that are coming from the continent. And because of these teachings, Parliament, Scottish Parliament, which is still dominated by the Catholics at this point, begin to enact laws against the spread of Protestantism, and by 1528, you begin to see the first burnings of itinerant preachers. So we'll start burning them at the stakes. Okay? All right. But death threats, not enough to deter any Scot or any good Protestant, and they begin to uh, teach and take, their teachings begin to take hold and spread throughout the nobility and the university students. Why the nobility? Well, due to power struggles, with the throne, the Scottish nobility had recently seen a loss of many of their ancient privileges and grew at odds with the throne. So basically, if the throne's going to remain Catholic, I'm going to become Protestant just to become a thorn in your side. And by golly, I'll, do it a, I'll, I'll make a power struggle out of it. Right? Because he who holds power holds the church in uh, medieval European societies. University students. Why university students? Well, what's a university for? It's for the study of new ideas, right? University means unity out of diversity. That's where they get that word, right? So new ideas spread quickly at universities, as we have seen. And uh, university students got really good at smuggling books off of the continent onto the British Isles because I want to know what's going on. Therefore, I'm going to read these books. I don't care if they're banned. I don't care if I get burned at the stake. I want to know what's going on. So they... Bring them in. Right? Plus, university students tend to be young minds and not set in their ways. And so the best way to do it is to spread those new ideas through young minds. Does that make sense? Okay, questions so far. Who wants to give a review of all of the genealogy we just spoke of? This is Sarah's degree. She is a European historian. On May the 26th, though, things really begin to take shape in Scotland. May the 26th, 1546, following the execution of the Protestant preacher George Wissart, uh, Wissart is W-I-S-H-A-R-T, it's like wish-art, Wissart, Scottish Protestant nobles overrun the castle of St. Andrew. The castle of St. Andrew is located in St. Andrew, Scotland, right? That's where St. Andrew's University is located, right? They kill David Cardinal Beaton, right? So the Protestant nobles have now killed a Catholic cardinal, right? They lock themselves up in this castle, and the Scottish government, in turmoil as Protestants and Catholic nobility fight each other, do little but send troops to try to take back this castle. doesn't really work that well, right? A siege ensues. The troops withdraw because they're unable to take the castle back. 
right? And so the castle of St. Andrew becomes the rallying point for Scottish Protestantism. That's 1546. At this point, we now enter John Knox. John Knox is the reformer of Scotland. We're going to run into John and five other guys named John here in a second. Little is known, here's John Knox, with once again his reformer's cap. He looks a little bit like Calvin in this picture, to be honest. He's got that long flowing beard. He's born sometime in late 1514, early 1515. Not a whole lot's known about his early life. But by uh, 1540, he is a priest and a tutor for a Scottish noble family. So he had spent some time on the continent studying theology, right, and had been educated in uh, some of the universities there. But other than that, that's all we know about his early life. The family for whom he was a tutor became Protestant and was involved in the storming of St. Andrew's Castle. And so by this time, Knox was uh, learning Protestantism. He spent most of his time with George Wissert, the same George Wissert who was just executed, thus causing the storming of St. Andrew's Castle. Okay? Knox was ordered to bring with him to the castle this nobleman's two sons. Knox himself was actually hoping to drop the kids off, go like, see you later, I'm getting out of this mess. I'm going over to the continent, and I'm going to study more theology. But once he got to the castle, they were like, oh, by the way, you're not leaving. And he goes, dang it. Right? They go, you're not leaving. In fact, what we're going to do is make you the main preacher of our Protestant community. And he goes, well, that doesn't seem very fair. I didn't really have a choice. And they were like, that's the point. You're here now. You're basically our theological prisoner. Right? You will be our preacher. And so he becomes their preacher against his wishes. Huh? And it's from there that he begins to carry his claymore with him at all times. He straps it to his back. Everywhere he goes, he's got this giant sword sticking out of him. Right? Eventually... The crown of Scotland, with French help, takes over the castle, right? They take back St. Andrews, Knox, and everybody else that is alive is captured and condemned to be a galley slave in the French Navy. Uh, have you ever seen Ben-Hur? Raise your hand if you've seen Ben-Hur. Okay. You know, Ben-Hur sitting in that Roman galley, and he's linked to, and I've seen the Charlton Heston one. I don't, the other one I, don't, I haven't seen. Was it no good? Okay. I've read the book, too, by Lou Wallace, which the movie is based off of. Lou Wallace was a Union general during the American Civil War. But anyway, that doesn't matter. Uh, So, you know, he's shackled into this boat. He's a galley slave. He's rowing, right? He was not well treated by the French for 19 months. So guess what happened to Knox's idea of the French? He began to hate them. He loathed them for the rest of his life. Like he wished nothing but death and dishonor upon all Frenchmen for the rest of his life. That's how bad he hated them. So, uh, luckily for him, though, uh, Edward VI becomes king during this time, and his government is able to negotiate a release of these men, as long as they never lived in Scotland again. 
Okay? So he, he becomes a, ga- a galley slave, develops a lifelong hatred for the French. Right? He's released thanks to uh, Edward VI's intervention. Right? And he moves to England where he becomes a pastor. Right? Now, we know that Eng- Edward VI did not last very long. He only reigned for six years. Died at, began at the age of nine, died at the age of 15. Right? Who becomes qu- queen after Edward VI dies? Mary Tudor, Mary I. Now, Edward VI is Protestant. What's Mary I? Catholic. All right? What happens during Mary's reign? To give her the name Bloody Mary, she does nothing but persecute everybody, right? 300 people killed within five and a half years, right? So, do you think Knox stuck around England for very long? Nope. He finally escapes to the continent where he goes to Geneva and is taught by John Calvin himself. After John Calvin's death, though, uh, he comes back. But Knox is invited back from Geneva in 1558 with Mary's the first death. Remember, she died in 1558. But in exile, he wrote a couple of books. Uh, One of them was a very polemic attack on women regents, women rulers. And it's called, are you ready for this? It says, the first blast of the trumpet against monstrance regiment of women. All right, I'll say that again. The first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. Right. In it, his attacks are aimed at Mary I, Mary of Guise, and Catherine de' Medici. We'll get to Medici here in a minute, too. Right. However, its publication is at a bad time because it's published just before Mary I's death. Right, so it's going around just enough so people are like, oh yeah. But then Elizabeth I comes to the throne and she's like, I don't like this writing at all because it can also be pertained to me. And by golly, if you're going to be this anti-feministic, I don't want to have anything to do with you, John Knox. So basically what he does is he ruins any type of relationship he can build with Elizabeth I. And he spends most of the rest of his life writing multiple recantations of this book addressed to Elizabeth that says, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about Mary the first. Oh, by the way, that's your half-sister, so I was insulting your half-sister. Mary of Guise and then Catherine de' Medici. And she goes, I don't care. All the garbage that you said in it could be taken to any woman. So therefore, as a woman in esteem and high authority, I don't care what you say. Right? So their relationship is nil. Right? That's going to come in play when we look at England and Scotland and how Elizabeth has to come to the aid of Scotland here in a second. Right? So she doesn't take it well. Right? So, there we go. Any questions so far? No? Okay. All righty. Let's go back then to... I just lost my notes. Oh, here we go. All righty. That's that. That's England. That's him coming back from Scott, from the continent. That's him writing all that stuff, right, for Knox's. Meanwhile, in Scotland, Mary of Guise is beginning her other anti-Protestant policies. Right? She begins to act more pro-Catholic policies or anti-Protestant policies 
And this forces the Protestant nobles to unite and create a covenant called the Lords of the Congregation. And the Lords of the Congregation uh, see increased persecution against Protestant and, the her- and Protestant heretics. But by 1558, the Lords of the Congregation are the ones that then organize the Church of Scotland. Right? So these are Scottish nobles, and they are the ones organizing the church. Right? Remember how we said that Luther and Calvin and Zwingli are magisterial reformers, meaning that they work with the government that's going around at the time? In this case, the government is actually setting up the church, a lot like Henry VIII does in England. All right? Okay, so the government's directly involved. But this case, they're setting up a parallel church against Mary of Guise, who is Catholic. So you've got the Catholic church under Mary of Guise, and under the lords of the congregation, you have the Protestant church. Okay? All right, I promise this will all make sense in a few minutes. All right, right now it doesn't seem that way, but it does. Stick with me. Okay? Right. So they invite Knox back. Knox has already written his polemic against women rulers. Right. Uh, when Knox returns to Scotland, things are not going well for the lords of the congregation. So the Protestants keep losing. They keep being persecuted. They keep losing in battle. Right. And this time, Mary of Guise asks. France for troops against the lords of the congregation. So now she's wanting to bring in more foreign troops. Remember, Mary of Guise is from France. She's just basically asking her family, hey, can you guys spare some soldiers? Because we'll do that. Okay? However, the lords are able to win some victories against the French, mainly because once the French soldiers got there, they didn't really want to be there. Who can blame them? Scotland's cold, and they have horrible food. Right? And the French are used to fairly nice climate and good food. All right? Plus, you're, you're away from home fighting a war that you have no business being in. So they all want to go home. Okay? And keeping an army in the field for the French is taking up valuable time and resources. All right? The lords then appeal to Elizabeth, and they appeal repeatedly. And they appeal repeatedly. And they appeal repeatedly. But who ticked off Elizabeth but John Knox? And guess how many times she was like, no, all but one. Right? She finally sends troops. Right? They get up to the French, and the French are like, look, we really don't want to be here. Can we just, can we just sue you for peace and go home? And Elizabeth is like, you bet, get off, of the con- get off of the island. So they sue for peace, pack up, and go home. Right? Now in this, you would think that the lords of the congregation are like, all right, now we can like start really focusing on our theology. We can start really writing down our confession of faith. We can start writing down similar things like the 39 articles we looked at yesterday or last week or the common book of prayer, but they don't. They think, oh, now's a great time to plunder the church of its wealth. 
John Knox has to stand up and say, nope, we're not doing that. We're going to use it for universal education, right? So it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what uh, social rank you come from. Everybody in Scotland is going to learn how to read. Because guess what the literally, literacy rate in Scotland is at this time? It's less than 1% of 1%, right? Because most of that goes to the nobility and the clergy. All right. We're going to use fund it for universal education. We're going to help the poor and the needy, and we're going to support the church. Well, this puts them at odds now with the lords of the congregation because they're like, don't you tell us what to do, John Knox. We're the ones that brought you over here. We're the ones that did all this, and uh, we don't care. Right. Okay, so now you have the lords fighting against, they go from one enemy, Mary of Guise and the French, to a new enemy, John Knox. Right? But then in the midst of all that, they start to fight each other, which is great. Right? They start to fight among themselves. And while all this is happening, Mary of Guise dies in 1560. Okay? All right. So Mary Stuart's mom finally dies. Mary's brought over in 1561, as we already discussed. All right? And when Mary Stuart is invited back to Scotland, she's back to claim the throne of her father. But clashes with her and Knox begin almost immediately because Mary Stuart, being raised in France, is Catholic. And she demands mass be celebrated in her private chapel. Her half-brother, James Stuart, because everybody is named Mary or James up in Scotland, he was the Earl of Moray. He's Protestant. And he goes up to Knox and Mary's like, hey, can't we all just get along? We've done enough bloodshed. We're tired, right? So they agree to disagree, and they walk away. But good old Knox, because he's Scottish and he can't keep his mouth shut, says things like, he begins to preach against Mary Stuart, and she calls her the new Jezebel. That is a direct quote. A new Jezebel. Right? And if we all know the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament, right? Jezebel was not a wonderful woman. Right? So how would you f feel, ladies, if you were called the new Jezebel? And you were... Yeah. Exactly. Right. Burn him at the stake. Right? Okay? All of this is going on. All of this is going on with Mary, Mary of Guise and Mary Stuart. And in the midst of all this fighting, Knox somehow finds the time to bring the Protestant nobles again together to now organize what they go from the Church of Scotland and the lords of the congregation to the reformed church of Scotland. That's big, right? He spends all that time on the continent studying under Calvin, so now his theology is reformed, capital R. Right? When, we, when we get through that part in systematics and then come back and do a comparative study of the historical theology, that'll make a whole lot more sense. Right? But now he's wanting to really set down a church for Scotland. So what does he do? He brings everybody together, and they, have a, they develop a polity, a church polity, church government, that's very similar to today's Presbyterianism because the Reformed Church of Scotland swings in in the 17th century, late 17th, early 18th centuries, into the Presbyterian Church. Presbyterian Church is ruled by presbyters, elders. Right? They have an elder board 
Does that sound familiar to you all? Okay, we are a Presbyterian-style polity. We are not a Presbyterian church, but we are a Presbyterian polity, which just means we have an elder board, right? So we have two pastors and two elders. And that's basically what John does. He sets that up. He goes, that works the best, okay? That's something that he learned from Calvin, right? But in the midst of all this, he's doing some more writing. So he writes a book called The Book of Discipline. Guess what that one's about? Discipline, church discipline, and how you operate in a church. The second one is called The Book of Common Order, right? The English have the Book of Common Prayer in the Church of England. The Reformed Church of Scotland has the Book of Common Order. And guess what? They both are liturgies for the church to show you how church service will go. But then he does something absolutely different, something that was not done in England, something that was not really done on the continent either, but he writes a confession. And in 1560, John and five other guys named John, it's John Knox, John Winram, just listen to the names, just call them John, John and five Johns, John Winram, John Spottiswood, John Willock, John Douglas, and John Rowe all sit down in 1560 and in four days write the Scots Confession. It is a 25-chapter article, and by chapter I mean paragraph, all right? Uh, lying out, laying out, detailing, this is what we believe. It's, it's basically the, they took the Nicene Creed and they broke it down into 25 chapters and said this is what we believe, all right? That is the first main confession written during the Protestant Reformation. The next one will be in the 1580s, and that's the Baptist London Confession of 1580s. Right, so the Baptists then write one, the Anabaptists. Right. But the, uh, the Scots Confession will be uh, the predominant one until the Westminster Confession of Faith is written 87 years later. Okay? The confession, as we said, exactly what it says, confessions what the, confesses what the Reformed Church of Scotland believes. And it's also made law, so that by the uh, Scottish Parliament in 1560, they uh, enact the Confession of Faith Ratification Act, and parts of the confession remain on Scottish law to this day. Right? Scott's Confession is a fun one to read. It's very straightforward. There's no, no long-windedness, unlike me, and there's, uh, it's just very, it's a beautifully written confession. And you can get a, a modern, uh, modern copy of all that. Now, let's go back to Mary Stuart, right? As we said, Mary Stuart returns to England in 1561. She's 18, right? She still desires the throne of England. She still desires the throne of Scotland, Right? She marries her cousin, Henry Stuart, who is Lord Darnley. So, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, who also has a distant claim to the throne because he is also a great-great-grandchild, or a great-grandchild, excuse me, of Henry VII. Right? They have one surviving legitimate child, and his name is James Stuart. James Stuart becomes James VI of Scotland, and upon the death of Elizabeth in 1603, becomes James I of England. Okay? Now we're going to tie the throne of Scotland and England together under one person, James I. And we'll discover next week, or actually in two weeks, 
James I is the one responsible for the King James or the authorized version of the Bible in England. Okay? Mary's half-brother in this time objects to the marriage, right? Uh, and in fact, he rebels. Mary Stewart calls on this guy named Lord Bothwell to deal with Moray, and he soundly defeats Moray in battle, and Moray flees to London. Just listen to this. Right? So, meanwhile, Mary Stewart begins to think that her marriage to Lord Donnelly is a mistake, and she lets Lord Bothwell know about it and know her feelings. So that in 1567, after they married in 1565 and had one kid, Lord Darnley is assassinated. Gee, I wonder who got involved in that one. Right? Bothwell is the main suspect. So basically her lover is the main suspect in the death of her husband. Okay? Right? He's somehow legally cleared of all charges. Imagine that. Bothwell is legally cleared of all charges, uh, and a few months later, he and Mary Stewart get married. Right? So Mary, Queen of Scots, and Bothwell are now married. That's a little fishy. Right? But the Scottish nobility do not like Bothwell, and so, being good Scottish nobility, they rebel. Mary's troops will not fight for her, and so she soon feels or finds herself trapped. So what they do... If the, no, the Scottish nobility say, we've got dirt on you that you are responsible for the death of your husband, Lord Darnley, right? therefore we'll blackmail you into abdicating the throne, to which she finally caves in and does. She abdicates the throne of Scotland, giving it to James VI, who is about a year old. Okay, righty. So Moray in exile in London, returns and rules as regent for his nephew, James VI. Right? Mary Stuart flees to England to seek refuge under her cousin Elizabeth I. When she gets there, everybody's like, just kill her. And she's like, I can't do that. That's family. I've had enough of bloodshed in my family. There's no way I'm going to do this. And so she's like, I'll put you away in this relationship. She treats her well for 20 years, right? But Mary, being an idiot, doesn't take the, oh, maybe my chance has come. I'm just going to sit in this nice castle for the rest of my, or palace for the rest of my life and be, you know, treated as royalty because that's what I am. She keeps getting involved in these conspiracies. Well, the first couple of conspiracies, they can't really link her directly to any type of desire to assassinate Elizabeth and usurp the throne. But the third time, third time's always a charm, right? So she gets involved in this conspiracy, and the, this time the, uh, the data, the, the connection is clear. And Elizabeth has no choice but to sign the death warrant. So in February of 1580. Seven, Mary, the Queen of Scots, is beheaded at Fotheringay Castle. Thus ends Mary, the Queen of Scots, executed by her cousin, Elizabeth I of England, for her desire to rule over the throne of both Scotland and England. Thus ends the Scottish Reformation, once again, by somebody's execution. 
or death. Right? Just like the English Reformation ends 16 years later with Elizabeth's death, the Scottish Reformation ends with the beheading of Mary, Queen of Scots in 1587. Righty? Okay. For his part, though, Knox, who's still alive during all of this, right? Uh, he's, wanting to, he's wanting to preach. He's still trying to keep Scotland out of turmoil now that Mary's gone and they've got to raise James VI from you know, being less than one year old to now. Right? Uh, the stress gets to Knox and by early Knox and by 1572 he suffers a stroke. If you read the language from then, they call it a paralysis. You know, some doctors and historians have thought, well, maybe he had a panic attack, but when you look at the actual verbiage used, he, he suffers a stroke, and he goes out of public life. Right? But, then appearing, uh, but upon hearing of uh, the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in France in August of 1572, Knox climbs his pulpit for one last time in St. Giles Church on November the 9th, 1572, preaches unity among the Scots lest they suffer a similar fate as to what happened in France. And 15 days later, on the 24th of November, 1572, he dies. Thus ends John Knox. Right? That's the Scottish Reformation. It's unlike any other Reformation you've ever heard of, except for the French Reformation, which we're about to get into. And then it's totally different. Right? Any questions on the Scottish Reformation? How many people thought it would end that way? Good. Right? It's kind of a weird reformation. Because basically all it is, it's a family power struggle. And in the midst of it, Protestant preachers kind of take advantage of some of the turmoil and the fact that they've got all of this availability now. And they're like, oh hey, let's start let's start reforming the church. You know, they kind of go they go around as opposed to right up the middle. Right? Okay, questions on that. Questions on the English Reformation. Questions on how those are all tied together, because we can go through the genealogy again if we need to. No? Oh, that's too bad, because we're going to do so in the French Reformation as well. Okay? Right? All of this is going on in Scotland. Scotland and France are briefly united under Mary Stuart and Francis II. But the Reformation in France comes quietly, slowly, secretively. And there are a lot of times of peace between the Protestants and the Catholics, but there were other times of great persecution against Protestants at the hands of the Catholics. And unlike the Reformations that we have discovered so far, in the French Reformation, there is no single reformer that stands out. Right? In German states, we have Luther. In the Swiss Confederation, we have Zwingli. In Geneva, we have Calvin. Right? We have Menno Simons up in the northern aspect, in the low countries. Right? These all all single men to focus on. And then we have John Knox in Scotland. We don't have that in France. Right? What you see in France is more of this nobility and family infighting stuff that then just kind of allows ideas to filter over the borders. And what we see in France is that the French Reformation is highly influenced by John Calvin because Geneva is like this far from the French border. At least it is on a map, right? Okay? So you have this fluctuating of ideas. 
But what you also have is you have two families, actually three families, coming together, trying to fight each other. One's going, I'm going to be Protestant, so I'm going to let this, all this information in. The others are like, I'm going to be Catholic, and I'm going to fight against all this information that's coming in. All right, so basically what they're trying to do is backbite each other, and in the process, the information just, and the, the theology and the information just flows right through the borders. And, they, and you're going to see one family flips back and forth between being Protestant and Catholic seven times. Right? All for political gain. Ready? Are you ready for this one? All right. Get your pillows out because this one's a fun one. Okay? Here's the socio-political climate of France. All right? Okay? All right, we're already familiar with Francis I. He hates Charles V, who's the Holy Roman Emperor. They're always at it. Okay? So we don't need to spend too much time there. We just know that Francis is always busy fighting Charles V. Charles V is always busy fighting Francis I, right? And they don't give much attention to the Protestants because they're always at each other's throats. Francis I, his policies towards them fluctuate as political necessity dictates, right? If he can focus on them, great. We're going to persecute the Protestants. If I don't have time to focus on them, I'll just let them be. I've got other fish to fry, right? During the times of peace and persecution, though, Protestantism grows leaps and bounds in France. But it's also during the time of persecution under Francis I that John Calvin flees in exile, hoping to go to Strasbourg, but ends up in Geneva. Now, here's where the fun part begins. Francis I has a sister named Marguerite. Her name is Marguerite Angeline. We'll just call her Marguerite of Navarre here in a second because she is married to King Henry II of Navarre, a.k.a. Margaret of Navarre. There she is. Go, go back to the map for a second of France. You see down here this light green color in between France and Spain? Okay. Right, uh, southwest. Keep going, keep going. You're halfway there. Keep going. Right there. That's Navarre. That's the kingdom of Navarre. Right? So Marguerite of Navarre, who is the sister of Francis I, is married to King Henry II of Navarre. Why? Because everybody's name is Henry, and everybody's name is Mary or Margaret or James. Or John, right? She's Catholic. Now, Margaret of Navarre is Catholic. But she is okay and welcomes, okay with and welcomes the reform movement that is happening in France and in her kingdom. Why? Well, because she had a humanist education and she wanted to know about as much of this as possible. For her time, she is one of the most highly educated people on the continent of France not to mention the fact that she's a highly educated woman, and that is something important to remember. Okay? She offers sanctuary. When Francis I is persecuting Protestants, Margaret of Navarre is offering sanctuary to French Protestants as a Catholic queen. That's amazing. Right? Why? Because she wanted to know what was going on. She was, as we said, a humanist in her education, and she wanted to study the actual sources. Right? 
she and Henry II have a daughter named Jean d'Albert or Jane of Albert, right? And uh, he, she becomes the mother of Henry III of Navarre. Now, Henry III of Navarre is going to come important here in a minute, okay? Because Henry III of Navarre becomes Henry IV of France. It's crazy complicated, right? All you need to know, Henry III of Navarre becomes Henry IV of France. But all of this, as we will see in a second, is one giant family struggle, right? Because now there's going to be a whole bunch of intermarriages, right? I actually think this part is actually kind of fascinating. The, the genealogies of England, Scotland, and France are about to be tied together once again, right? Uh, right, we'll discuss Henry IV of France here in a minute. Francis of the first dies in 1547. He's succeeded by his son. Guess what his son's name is? Francis II. Yeah. Yeah. There he is. Okay. Right. Yep. So, oh, wait a second. No, that was wrong. His name is Henry II. Whoa. Throws in something else. Right? Yeah. Throws, throws, in a little, throws in a little stuff, right? He marries Catherine de Medici. Now, the Medicis are from Italy, of the Medici line. Right? Henry II and, Fran and uh, uh, Catherine Medici have three sons. The first son is named Francis II. Right? He marries Mary Stuart. And honestly, Catherine de Medici, who is one power-hungry individual, becomes regent for three of her sons because none of her sons last very long. Right? Henry II increases persecution of Protestants in a very cruel manner. All right? And it's in 1555, during his reign, that the first Protestant churches in France actually begin to become organized using Calvin's model in Geneva. And they write a book of discipline and they write a confession of faith. Right, but it is not considered the first confession of faith because it was not recognized by the government. Remember, the Scots Confession of 1560 is recognized by the Scottish Parliament and made law. This church's, par this church's confession of faith is not even recognized ever. It's just there. Does that make sense? All right. So the important part of it is 1560 Scots Confession, recognized and made law by the Scottish Parliament. The 1555 one of the French Protestant Church is not recognized by anybody but within the French Protestant Church. Okay? Right? You have to remember that there are a lot of, it's all the politics that are involved at this time, and that's really, honestly, it kind of throws most of us Americans into a tizzy when we think about the connection of church and state, even at that time. Okay? Henry dies in 1559 from a wound received during a jousting tournament. Uh, he has a splinter in his eye from a jousting lance. Infection sets in. He dies of sepsis. That sucks. All right. Francis II becomes king. Yep, that very same Francis II. He marries Mary Stuart within, like, weeks of his coronation. All right. His mother is Catherine, and she wants the power behind the throne. Francis is 15 years old. When he's married, we realize that he dies in 1560 at a very young age. He's 
not even 17 yet when he passes. But there he is. Okay. Okay. Catherine is the one who wants to be the person behind the throne. She's very ambitious. But her power is thwarted by the powerful house of Guise. All right, we've just run into that name, Guise, G-U-I-S-E. Who have we talked about who's of the house of Guise? Mary of Guise. She is the regent of Scotland and the mother of Mary Stuart, queen of Scots. All right? So, remember Mary sends Mary down to her family in France to learn how to be educated and to be basically royalty and basically to be French as well, right? But the House of Guise have been advisors to Henry II, and they are the actual power behind the throne. And so when Francis II becomes king, the House of Guise is actually his advisors. So you've got Catherine Medici, who wants to be, who's the mother, right? She wants to be the power, but this other family, the House of Guise, is actually the power behind the throne. They're the regents. That's going to cause a massive issue. Right? Most of the nobility, though, resents the House of Guise. And the ones that hate him the most is the House of Bourbon or Bourbon. It's the same family or region name where we get the term bourbon for bourbon whiskey. Okay. Now, we've already talked about Margaret of Navarre, and she has a daughter named Jane Albert. Well, Jane marries Antoine, or Anthony, of Bourbon, right? And Jane becomes a Calvinist, and so does Antoine. They just up and change their religion, not for conviction's sake, but for politics, okay? Right? It's all, all of France, the French Reformation is nothing but politics. That's all it is, okay? Because it trickles from the top down, trickles from nobility all the way down to the commoner, and it's all politics. It sounds a lot like England, and it sounds a lot like Scotland, right? All politics, the House of Guise, though, is very Catholic, and they hope to stamp out Protestantism. And the best way to do that is to stamp out the House of Bourbon, which they attempt to. And they, the, to be fair, Bourbon tries to stamp out the House of Guise multiple times as well. There develops a struggle between the Guise and the Bourbons, and it takes on religious overtones. In the midst of all of this is discovered a conspiracy. Why? Because you wouldn't be in royalty if you didn't have a conspiracy to discover. And the conspiracy is called the Conspiracy of Amboise, A-M-B-O-I-S-E, A-M-B-O-I-S-E. So the House of Bourbon was going to attempt to keep Francis II away from the influence of the House of Guise. Well, most of the conspirators in this conspiracy are Protestant. Right? And the name given to the conspirators is the name Huguenot. You all heard the term Huguenot before? H-U-G-U-E-N-O-T. H-U-G-U-E-N-O-T. Why they gave him the name Huguenot, historians do not know. It is kind of a random word. It's actually a Germanic language uh, background type word, and it literally just means confederation. 
right? So we don't know if, if it's because they were coming together as a group of conspirators, therefore they had a confederation of conspiracy or whatnot. They just gave French Protestants the name Huguenots, and that name has stuck to this day. Okay? All right? Okay? Why it's imposed, have no clue. All right? Indicated in this conspiracy plot are Antoine Bourbon and his brother Louis, and they are imprisoned. But good thing for them, Francis II dies in 1560. Right? So when Francis dies, Mary no longer has Mary of Stuart no longer has connection to the French throne. Right? She has to go back later to Scotland. But this time, Francis II's brother, Charles IX, there's Francis II, there's Charles IX, is crowned at the age of 10. He dies at the age of 28. So he rules for like basically on his own for 10 years after his 18th birthday. Charles IX's mother, Catherine, determined not to be embarrassed by the Guises or the Bourbons, frees Louis and Antoine, all right, but politically aligns herself with the House of Bourbon because she hates the Guises that much. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That type of thing. And so Catherine, out of political policy and not conviction, cultivates her relationship with French Protestants. What does she do? She frees any Protestant in prison. What else does she do? She attempts to have a meeting between Catholic, uh, Catholic and Protestant theologians, but that fails. But finally, in 1562, what she does is she issues an edict called the Edict of St. Germain, it's basically German with an I in between the A and the N. So G-E-R-N-A-I-N, St. Germain. She grants the Huguenots the freedom to worship. However, this is going to come with a lot of buts. Freedom to worship. But you're not allowed to own your own place of worship. But you can't gather in ecumenical councils or ecclesiastical councils without a permit. Ninety times out of... 100, that permit is not given to you, or it's lost, okay? But you can't collect any funds, but you can't support an army. So basically, all they could do is worship outside city walls. That was all they could do, right? They don't really have freedom. They're just not allowed to be, you know, the, the freedom that they have is not real freedom. They're just given a whole lot of, you can do this just as long as we don't see you. Right? You can't, can't have any political connections, can't raise an army, because everybody raised armies at this time. Right? Okay. And also, when you worship, it has to be during the daytime. Right? You can't do any secret nighttime worship meetings, because that's when conspiracies happen. So while trying to gain the favor of the Protestants, Catherine limits any political or military power that they hope to gain. That's basically what she's doing. Right? She's saying, yeah, you can do this, but here are my intentions. I'm going to limit you in your power. Because why? Because the French Reformation is nothing but a power struggle. That's all it is. What she really wanted to do was make them a threat to the House of Guise, but that kind of fails. right? And even though... Uh, even though she tries to do that, 
at the same time, she's wanting to remove any threat to the unity of the nation or the power of the throne. Basically, what Catherine's trying to do is keep power for herself because who's the one that comes up with this edict? It's Catherine. Therefore, who's the power behind the throne? Catherine is. Why? Because her son is not 18 years of age yet. I save my backside by putting all of these limits. I save my power to the throne by putting up all these limits. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I wonder if politicians still do that. Right. The House of Guise, of course, what do you, what do you expect the House of Guise to do? They, they go, okay, Catherine, you're right. We'll do it. No, they rebel, right? And on the 1st of March, 1562, the House of Guise with 200 armed noblemen surround a horse stable in the small town of Versailles where Huguenots were gathered to worship and they massacre them. This sparked a series of religious wars that ranged or raged, excuse me, until the 1570s and leads directly to our next topic, which is the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. If there's anything in French Reformation history that you're like, oh yeah, I remember one thing, it's the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. All right? We'll find out why here in a second. All right? The conflicts that follow from the massacre of Versailles lead to the death of the Duke of Guise and his son, whose name is Henry, right, wants revenge. So the Duke responsible for the original massacre of Versailles is murdered. And his son, Henry, Duke of Guise, wants revenge. Right? The Protestant power, Protestant power and influence, though, over Charles IX was growing. And this also worries Catherine Medici. Right? Because remember, she was like, I'm going to do this edict of St. Germain. It's going to limit your power. But now, all of a sudden, you're beginning to have more power. So now I've got the House of Guise to worry about. And now I also have Protestants to worry about. Right? Because why? Because Catherine held power to the throne. Right? Charles IX is not yet able to reign. And so a plot is created in 1572 to get rid of all of the Huguenot leaders. Now, now we go back to Henry Bourbon. Henry Bourbon is now king of Navarre. He becomes king upon the death of his father and mother in 1572. Henry Bourbon is engaged to Charles IX's sister, Margaret of Valois. Valois is V-A-L-O-I-S. Valois, V-A-L-O-I-S. There she is. So they get married on the 18th of August of 1572. At the wedding ceremony, or actually on the way home from the wedding ceremony, an assassination attempt is made on the life of the Huguenot leader, Gaspard de Coligny, and all evidence points to the House of Guise. Here's what you got to remember. Henry Verbon is now married to the royal family of France by Margaret of Valois. On the way home from the wedding ceremony, somebody takes a pot shot at the head Huguenot leader, Gaspard. That's a great name. Right. Okay. 
while Gaspard is healing, he loses a finger and is wounded in the arm. Right? While he is uh, healing, right, the Guises are banned from Charles IX's court during investigation, but then somehow Catherine convinces her son, Charles IX, that it's actually the Huguenots that are responsible for shooting their own leader, and that the Huguenots are somehow trying to get his throne. Charles IX was not the brightest crayon in the box, and he bought what his mother was telling him. Okay? So Catherine, with the help of the House of Valois, or excuse me, the House of Guise, leads a surprise attack on the Huguenot leaders in Paris, killing Gaspard de Colonnais. But in the midst of it, 2,000 other Huguenots are massacred, both nobility and commoners. Okay. Henry Bourbon and his brother Louis are dragged before Charles IX and are spared only because they say, I'll renounce my faith, I'm coming back to the Catholic communion. Right. The Duke of Guise then issues orders through Catherine that similar actions should be taken against Protestants in other provinces around France, and by the end of it, tens of thousands of Protestants are dead. They're just wiped off the face of the earth, practically. Right. We don't have an exact number, but ranges range from anywhere from 55 to 75,000 Protestants are killed based off of the Saint, based off of the actions of the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Okay. Now, why is that important? Why is the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre important? Because basically, what it does is it leaves France in chaos. And we go from the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre to more wars of religion, right? The best wars that are about to happen are called the War of the Three Henrys. Guess how many Henrys are involved? Three. Why? Because nobody has a different name. I'm they're either Gaspard or Henry, right? Maybe Philippe, Francis, whatever, right? Yes, ma'am? Yes, ma'am. That is Catherine. Yep. They murdered men, women, and children. It did not matter how old you were. <laughs> there are no defense. No defense. Yeah. Right? They basically set these people up for failure. Yes, sir? And you couldn't raise funds to fund that army. Right? You couldn't even take tithes. So, because that's raising money. Right? All right, let's get to the War of Three Henrys, and then let's look at the Catholics real fast. Okay? Charles IX, weak ruler, dies of tuberculosis in 1574. That's a horrible way to go. Well, his brother is Henry of Anjou, so then he becomes Henry III, right? So we have Henry of Guise, Henry III, right? Then we've got Henry of Bourbon, right? Okay? 
they are not worth the money I pay him. (laughs) 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 Right in the middle of, that's awesome. Anyway, so just listen to this. So Henry of Anjou is some, Henry Henry III is a son of Catherine de' Medici. She somehow makes him king of Poland. He's French. Somehow makes him king of Poland. Actually, there's a long political, they're elected. Poland is not a country at this time. They're more of a principality. Right? Poor Poland, their history is awful. Right? Nobody, nobody ever roots for Poland. Right? So when he finds out that his brother dies, he hurriedly comes back to France to claim the throne of France, but doesn't abdicate from Poland. He doesn't even let him know that he's leaving. He just ups and goes. Right? So he still has the throne of France or throne of Poland. Right? So he comes back home, is crowned Henry III of France. He quickly makes peace with the Huguenots. Why? Political necessity. What does this do to the Catholics? It makes them mad. Right? What does it do to the House of Guise? It really makes them mad. Right? So the Duke of Guise, whose also name is Henry. with Spanish support, declares war on the Huguenots. So what Henry III does is he joins the Huguenots in war against Duke Henry of Guise. So we got two Henrys. Not to be left out of all the fun. If Henry III were to die, the direct line to the throne goes to Henry Bourbon, King of Navarre. So Henry Bourbon, king of Navarre, goes, I want in on this action. So now we've got Henry, the Duke of Guise, Henry III, and Henry, king of Navarre, all fighting each other. Actually, Henry III and Henry Bourbon make an alliance to go against Henry III, or uh, Henry, uh, Duke of Guise. That's why they call it the War of the Three Henrys because there are three Henrys involved. That is its actual name, folks. I am not making that up. Right? Okay. So what happens is that the Catholics obviously don't want uh, Henry Bourbon to be king, because he's a Protestant. Right? So they say, Henry, Duke of Guise, you better win this. Right? But they don't. On December 23, 1588, by Henry III's order, Henry, Duke of Guise, is assassinated. Do you think the Catholics gave up at that end? No, they don't. Unfortunately, Henry III's reputation is soiled, and he seeks refuge with Henry of Bourbon. That refuge doesn't last very long, though, because on the 1st of August of 1589, Henry III is assassinated by Jacques Clement, a fanatical Dominican friar. So a Catholic king who's in alliance with Protestants is killed by a Dominican friar. With his two main rivals now dead within an eight-month period, Henry Bourbon takes the crown and names himself Henry IV of France. That does not, however, end the wars of the Henrys. It looks like it's about to become an international struggle 
when Philip II of Spain, yes, that Philip II of Spain, Mary Tudor's husband, and then the same guy who later wants to marry Elizabeth I, but she turns him down. He comes in and goes, hey, I'll fight for the French Catholics, right? And then the Pope, who has absolutely nothing to do with any of this, gets involved, and he goes, oh, hey, Henry Bourbon, your claim to the French throne is invalid. Do you think Henry IV cared at this point? No, right? And the war lasts for four more years until 1593. What happens, though, is that Henry makes another political move. He goes, I really want the French crown, and I'm Protestant. And France is not ready for a Protestant king. So guess what he does? For the seventh time in his lifetime, he switches back to, Protest- to Catholicism. Why? Because he understood that the peace of the country is more important than whether he goes to Catholic Mass or a Protestant uh, worship service. Right? And there's a famous quote given to Henry IV, and he, was, he never said it in real life, but he said, Paris is worth a Mass, capital M. Paris is worth a mass. Henry, being an astute politician, in 1598 gives the Edict of Nantes, N-A-N-T-E-S, which grants Protestants freedom of worship in any city but Paris. Why? Because that's where the throne's at. You don't want to tick off the Catholics in good old gay Paris. And then on May 14th, 1610, just because all the other Henrys were assassinated, Henry IV is assassinated by a Catholic fanatic who still believes the king was a Protestant heretic, thus ending the French Reformation. Yeah. That's different, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. All the Henrys die, which is too bad. Everybody else dies, which is too bad. But that's the French Reformation. I mean, they don't, they don't have a strong Reformed leader. All of the Reformation is coming down from top. And it's usually just a power struggle of, oh, hey, I want to be king, therefore I'm going to become Protestant, or I want to be king, therefore I'm going to become Catholic, and I'm going to switch it multiple times, or this Catholic house is going against this Catholic, or this Protestant house. Right? So it's, it's all politics. That's all it is. The French Reformation, though, and the politics of Protestantism and Catholicism are going to have a direct effect 200 years later. Because by the end of all of these wars, the French people are getting tired of hierarchical church. And in the Estates General, which is the, basically the parliament, if you will, of the French kingdom and later on French empire, they begin to have these debates, right? And then the people start to grumble. And then on July 14th, 1789, they storm the Bastille. And the French Reformation leads directly to the French Revolution and the end of the House of Bourbon with the execution of Louis XVI of France. Crazy, huh? Isn't that crazy how history always ties together? 
Isn't that crazy how stupid people can be? Five bucks says nothing's new under the sun. Now let's look at the Catholic Church real quick. The Catholic Church, when we've looked at Catholic Reformation, it's also called the Counter-Reformation. And the Catholic Reformation does exactly what the Catholic Church, Church has done every time there's a reform. They go back to their doctrine, their traditions, and then what do they do? They say, oh, let's reform the monasteries and the convents, and let's create new orders. And that's exactly what they do. Now, this time they do throw in a council, so that's kind of cool, right? But what the, the Counter-Reformation or the Catholic Reformation does is sets up the Catholic Church as we know it today, okay? What? Catholic Reformation begins with Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain. Isabella wants qualified priests and bishops in their positions, all right? And she wants the right to name those men to those ecclesiastical offices. And the Pope goes, okay. Right? Ferdinand wanted it too, but he didn't, he didn't care who was qualified. I'll give you an example. He does it for political reasons. In 1478, he names his six-year-old illegitimate son, Alonso of Aragon, as the Archbishop of Saragossa. He's six. He's now the archbishop of the biggest or second biggest see in all of Spain. Six. All right? Think he did that for theological reasons? Nope. All politics. All right? But luckily, Isabella finds support in her confessor, Francisco Jimenez de Cisneros. Right? And later, against his will, she makes him Archbishop of the biggest see in Spain, the Archbishopric of Toledo, or Toledo. Right. Isabella and Cisneros reform universities and encourage scholarship. They want the study of scripture, and it is heavily encouraged for the reformation of customs and morals only. You look at scripture, you want the reformation only for morals and customs. There should be no questioning of doctrine and church discipline is all, or church tradition, excuse me, is always to be accepted. So you can study scripture, you can study the original languages, right? And Cisneros was a brilliant linguist. He actually writes a Spanish version of the New Testament based off of the Greek New Testament. But you cannot question the dogma of the church, in any of that, okay? And then on top of all of this, the Pope at the time gives Ferdinand and Isabella rights to the Inquisition. And nobody suspects the Spanish Inquisition. Right? Okay? The Inquisition began under the... I hope they actually sounded like it. <laughs> I wanted to show the Mel Brooks song, The Inquisition, but that would not have been appropriate. So. 
So that was the second best. Second best is right there. The Inquisition began under the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 by Innocent III, all right, was normally under the authority of the Pope, but now the Pope allows the authority to be placed under Isabella and Ferdinand. And the Spanish Inquisition, the most terrible of the Inquisitions, is placed under the zealous control of Tomas de Torquemada, and his name has become synonymous with cruelty and barbarity, Torquemada. T-O-R-Q-U-E-M-A-D-A, Torquemada. Okay? He tortured those whom he thought were heretics. They didn't have to be heretics. He just had to think that you were one. So he tortured you. He burned thousands of people at the stake. He kept thousands of people in prison just for the heck of it. The man was a sadist. He got a kick out of torturing people. Okay? He conducts a pogrom. Everybody know what a pogrom is? P-O-G-R-O-M. A pogrom is a, it's a directed assault on a people group. He directs a pogrom against the Jews in Spain. Right? Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Okay. And any, and any Jewish Spaniard who would not convert was forced to leave all territories controlled by Ferdinand and Isabella. So that by 1492, the same year that Columbus sails the ocean blue, 200,000 Jews are forced out of Spain. They have nowhere to go, honestly, because France doesn't want them. Portugal doesn't want them. The only other place they can go is across the Mediterranean or the Straits of Gibraltar to Morocco. And there is a large Jewish population in Morocco to this day. And with the fall of Granada a year later, the last Moorish stronghold in Spain, Torquemada attempts the same thing with the Muslims, but this time the Moors rebel and were subdued by heavy bloodshed. But this type of reaction by the Inquisition is repeated hundreds of times in Spain, Italy, France, German, England, excuse me, yeah, Spain, Italy, France, England, and the Germanic states. And it's the Spanish, or the Germanic, excuse me, it's the Italian Inquisition that grills Galileo over his understanding of the universe and the solar system. Okay? All right? That's the Spanish reform. All it does is universities, monasteries, and convents, and gives power to the Spanish Inquisition. That's it. That's all it does. There are some papal reforms. Pope Adrian VI, after he became Pope in 1522, right, uh, wants to reform the church, but he dies 20 months into his papacy, so he doesn't really get much done. Right? Clement VII, who succeeds him, right, he's Pope during the English Reformation, and we all know how that went for him. Right? He doesn't get much done. Instead, it's Paul III. Paul number three, all right, that does the most, but the irony is that Paul III is more interested in astrology than theology. Not astronomy. Astronomy is the study of stars and the solar systems in the universe. It's a branch of cosmology. I'm talking astrology, tarot card readings and palm readings, and your astrological and horoscope signs. He's Pope, right? 
He also makes his son, all right, which is great, the Duke of Parma and Piacenza. He then makes his grandsons, who were teenagers at the time, cardinals and elects them to the College of Cardinals. However, in 1540, he is the Pope to give official recognition to the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits, and we'll look at them here in a second. But the most important thing that Paul III does is he calls in the Council of Trent in 1455. So let's look at the Council of Trent. Council of Trent begins in December of 1545 in Trento, Italy, or Trent, Italy. It's land belonging to Charles V. Its goal was originally to address Protestantism, right, and actually address the theological questions that men like Luther were concerned about. Right? Luther dies the next year. They're almost 30 years too late into this fight. And Paul III finally goes, ah, oh, maybe we should draw, you know, let, let's get everybody together. Well, guess what? Not everybody comes together because the first meeting, only 31 people show up out of almost 400 that are invited. At its very zenith, only 231 bishops and cardinals show up. Not everybody's taking this seriously. Okay? The council, though, becomes a political shouting match between Charles V and Paul III and then other succeeding popes and other succeeding Holy Roman emperors. And it's suspended and reconvened eight times between the years of 1545 and its closing 18 years later in 1563. It spent most of its years in recess. But it does address numerous and important issues. Number one, bishops must reside in their sees, no absenteeism. Remember, you could be a bishop and not live in your town. Well, the Council of Trent says, no, you have to live there now. Bishops can only have one see, so no pluralism. No absenteeism, no pluralism. Okay. The clergy, number three, the clergy must know their jobs, so they have to be educated. And in doing so, the Council of Trent organizes and opens up more seminaries for the education of its clergy. So no absenteeism, no pluralism, clergy must know their jobs, opening up of more seminaries and universities. Regulates the use of relics and indulgences. It doesn't get rid of relics and indulgences, it just regulates them, because they still have relics and and indulgences to this day. It promotes the study of Thomas Aquinas, and he becomes the most important theologian in Roman Catholicism. That's number six. Right? So promotes the study of Thomas Aquinas, thus Thomas Aquinas becoming the dominant theologian in Roman Catholicism. Number seven, the Latin Vulgate, that is the Latin version of Scripture, is the authoritative matter in dogma. So if I'm going to look at any scripture, I have to do it in the Latin Vulgate. I cannot go back to the Greek. I cannot go back to the Hebrew and Aramaic. That's a problem because it's not even the original languages. And what did the reformers say? 
add fontes back to the sources, okay? back to the original languages. Tradition, what number is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, am I an eight? Eight. Tradition is an authority parallel to scripture. You got both of them, okay? Sola Scriptura in Protestantism. So, uh, I can't remember what it is. It's not solo. Anyway, it's scripture and tradition in Catholicism, okay? It sets, number nine, it sets the sacraments at seven. How many do we have? Two. What are they? Say it again. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Well, let's add five more to that. Marriage, confirmation, penance, anointing of the sick, and holy orders. So marriage, confirmation, penance, anointing of the sick, right, and holy orders. Anointing of the sick is sometimes called supreme uh, junction, uh, unction, thank you, right? It just basically means we're going to anoint you because you're about to die. Right? It's changed with modern medicine, but, you know, okay? it's visiting sick people in the hospitals. So in a way, we kind of do that, but it's not a sacrament. Okay? The mass can be said for the dead. That's number 10. Mass can be said for the dead. Number 11, communion of both kinds is not necessary. That changes with Vatican II. When was Vatican II? I'm glad you asked. 1960s. And last but not least, justification. Justification is done by good works through the collaboration between grace and the efforts of the believer. I'm going to repeat that. Justification is done through good works through the collaboration between grace and the efforts of the believer. So you are saved by grace and good works all at the same time. Okay? So while the Council of Trent does address some of the reformers' points, it also sets up modern Catholicism, and they would agree with all of these 12 points. Okay? And it isn't until Vatican II, 1962 to 1965, that Rome begins to take a long, hard look at what the reformers were actually saying, and yet, in that council, they're not actually called in direct response to Protestantism. Right, so by now, by Vatican II, Protestantism is already set up. It's gone too far. It's been 500 years almost, 450. Can't do anything about it. Last but not least, new orders. The first one is set up by St. Teresa of Avila. Here she is. Her grandfather was a converted Jew who had moved to Avila. Avila is in uh, the crown of Castile. Now uh, just Avila, Spain, but it was belonging to the crown of Castile. She was always fascinated by monastic orders. And against her father's wishes... She joins the Carmelite Convent of the Incarnation. So she becomes a Carmelite nun. Right? Okay, Carmelites are uh, St. Benedict orders. But she's not happy with this convent and uh, leaves to begin one herself. 
uh, her, her nuns, instead of wearing shoes, wore sandals. Right? So they became known as the Discalced, D-I-S-C-A-L-C-E-D, or Discalced Carmelites. Discalced just means barefoot. Now, they weren't actually barefoot because they wore sandals, but instead of regular shoes. Okay? Right? She was joined by St. John of the Cross, and basically all St. John of the Cross does, there it is, is creates the male order of the Discalced Carmelites. So Teresa does the, uh, the nuns, St. John does the monks, right? And in 1970, she is named by Pope Paul VI as a doctor of the church. Right? She is one of two women to be named doctors of the church. The other one is also the other St. Teresa. Okay? That's cool. So the last one is what we talked about earlier, the Jesuits, Ignatia Loyola. Right. Loyola was kind of the black sheep of his family. He hoped to have a military career. He came out of nobility. And he was wounded at the siege of Pamplona in Navarre in 1521. And while convalescing, he has a vision of Our Lady and the Holy Child. And after healing, he promised to go on pilgrimage. And he goes to the hermitage of Montserrat, where he devotes himself to his lady, the Virgin. That's capital L, capital V. Right? From there, he hopes to live a quiet life as a hermit in Manresa, also in Spain. But like Luther, he could not get past his deep sense of personal sin. Right? He never tells us how he really gets there, uh, but that's just that through God's grace, he gets over his sin. Right? From there, any type of parallelism you see between Luther and Loyola goes out the door. Where Luther wants to look at scripture and say, hey, you know, we've got some issues here at the church that need to be addressed. Loyola is more like, I just want to go contemplate my belly button, and then at the same time, I want to create a new order that's obedient to the Pope. So that's what he does. He devotes the rest of his life to the church and to her service. He first goes to the Holy Land, and there he goes, and after that he goes to the university. And he goes to some pretty massive and amazing universities. He goes to Barcelona. He goes to Alcala, he goes to the University of Salamanca, and later the University of Paris. He's a highly educated individual. He's also a lot older than a lot of his cohorts in these universities, because remember, he's a soldier before that, right? So he's got, he's got some life experience. In 1534, he returns to Montserrat and creates this new order, giving solemn vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience to the Pope. Obedience to the Pope is new. When you were in a monastery, you, your obedience was to Christ and the order. Loyola goes, if I want to get somewhere and I want my order to go anywhere, I want to take directions only from the Pope. So what he says is, Pope, I want to take just any type of obedience. All of my vows are made to the Pope. Therefore, I serve the church by serving the Pope. Right? He calls his new order the Society of Jesus. We know them as the Jesuits. Right? Okay. And because of their scholarly bent, they are seen as the first line of defense against Protestantism. Right? 1540, Paul III gives formal recognition to them. And they are one, currently, of the education branches of the church. 
There's the Dominicans, there's the Augustinians, and there's the Jesuits. Right? Uh, Boston College is a Jesuit college and a phenomenal school. I had the privilege of taking half of my second master's degrees classes there. Right? If I had to choose between Harvard and Boston College, it'd be Boston College all day long and twice on Sundays. They are a phenomenal school. Uh, the Jesuits really place a whole lot of, of uh, emphasis on education. Uh, and the men that I had the opportunity to study under, Father Paris and then Father Vicini, uh, are true men of God. They really truly are. Uh, who love Jesus and who love the church. And they even love us Protestants. And I said, how wonderful. I'm glad that your brother in Christ loves your another brother in Christ. And that always got a funny look from them, right? Okay? Now, that was a lot of stuff tonight. I wanted to get past the Reformation finally after five weeks because next week we won't have lecture, we won't have institutes because the following Sunday on August 2nd I preach and I will not go this long when I preach. Okay? I promise. 30 to 35 minutes at the most, right? Uh, but when we come back, we're going to jump straight into the 17th century. We're going to leave. The Refor all the Reformations are done. All of them. The Germanic one, the Swiss, right? We didn't really take a look at the Scandinavians and the Low Country. That's okay. No big deal. They're Calvinist. That's all you, uh, for the Low Countries, Lutheran uh, for Scandinavia. Don't worry about it, right? We've looked at them all. Now what we're going to do is begin to look at how the Reformation begins to form everything else beginning in the 17th century up to today. All right, so come, come armed with questions that you have always wanted to know about why we are where we are now here in the United States, right? Uh, and then any other questions you have uh, from anything else that we've spoken of. So uh, questions before we close. Need a refresher on genealogies? No? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the chance to wrestle with all of this very convoluted history and all of the weird family dynamics that take place. Uh, we thank you for uh, men like John Knox and Luther. We thank you for men like Ignatius Loyola. And we thank you for women like St. Teresa of Avila. That they loved the church, they loved you enough that they did want to see things change. They wanted to see things change for your glory and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we go out, may we learn from their examples. May we learn from their failures. May we learn from their victories uh, and continue to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.